Welcome back to the We Conquer podcast. Thank you for all the love on the first episode. Today, we are going to discuss a very important issue, Islamophobia. Joining me today is a close friend, Sara Rizvi. Hello, I'm Sara Rizvi, and like Anjali, I go to Hebrew and am also a senior. I have personally faced Islamophobia many times in my life. And although Islamophobia has been continuously happening for a long time, I think the peak was 9-11. Definitely. A statistic that encapsulates this peak is mentioned in an article that states, hate crimes against Muslims in the United States remain five times more common than before September 11, 2001. In 2001, a total of 481 incidents were reported in 2015, and there were 257 anti-Muslim incidents, up from 154 in 2014, a 67% increase. So this goes to show that there has been a significant jump in hate crimes against Muslims since 9-11. And with the increase in hate crimes, the sentiment towards Muslims has shifted to one where terrorism is the first word that comes to mind when people talk about Islam. Innocent Muslims are labeled as criminals without evidence, but when talking about white shooters that commit crimes worthy of being labeled as terrorism, they are simply considered mentally unstable. And there have been multiple articles released on this issue, and Fordham Law takes a deep dive into this blatant discrimination by detailing, when you hear the word terrorist, who do you picture? Chances are it is not a white person. In the United States, too common though false narratives about terrorists who attack America abound. We see them even on television, in the movies, on the news, and even in the Trump administration. The first is that terrorists are always brown Muslims. The second is that white people are never terrorists. This article by Fordham Law did such a good job in explaining that it is brown Muslims that were the target and stereotyped as quote-unquote terrorists. The reason why I was so keen on doing this episode was because even brown people sometimes refuse to believe that Islamophobia is a real issue. But because of a personal story of mine, I definitely know that Islamophobia exists and it is rampant. So my mom is a light-skinned Indian woman, and she does not look stereotypically Muslim, but she told me that even she got death threats the day after 9-11. She was alone in the apartment, and there were these large groups of white people that came up to her floor and began to bang on her door, screaming insults and hate sentences. So that situation was so scary for her. I can't even imagine what actual Muslims had to go through after 9-11. Speaking of 9-11, the experiences of Muslim students in schools on 9-11 are all extremely similar. We are seated in the backs of our classrooms and as soon as the announcement comes on for us to have a moment of silence for those killed on 9-11, every student in the class turns to look at us as if they are expecting an apology. It is so crazy to me because why should I have to feel guilty for something I didn't do and why don't they feel guilty for all the innocent Muslims they killed as a result of their Islamophobia? Because of this sentiment surrounding Muslims, microaggressions against us have only increased. I've personally been at the receiving end of microaggressions throughout my life, from when I was as young as in first grade until today. 
One that really stuck out to me, and I know that my Muslim friends have also had to go through, is the common phrase, you would look so pretty without your hijab. And up until middle school, I genuinely thought this was a compliment, but I realized it was just them trying to find a way to discreetly say that my hijab was standing in the way of me fitting into their beauty standards. They were so uncomfortable with my religion being showcased on me that they wanted me to erase it. Sarah's story is one that is quite common, and it is incredibly unfortunate that people still don't see this to be an urgent issue. And another form of microaggression that people often confuse for wanting to educate themselves is asking pervasive questions. Asking questions about the hijabs, holy texts, and even marriages. When something is unknown, it is important to do your own research because when one consistently asks questions to another about their culture or religion, you can make them feel extremely uncomfortable, especially if these questions are coming from a place of malice rather than understanding. One of the questions I get asked most often is if I'm oppressed because I'm quote-unquote forced to wear my hijab. This misconception is so prevalent in society that people, and even governments, will push for the ban of hijab on Muslim women. This is not making us free. It is only taking away our choice to wear what we want. Feminists who tell women what they can and can't wear obviously aren't actually in support of all women, just the women that conform to their version of freedom. Microaggressions like these can pile up and eventually turn into macroaggressions. While microaggressions are comments that people don't think are discriminatory, macroaggressions are blatantly Islamophobic comments. An example of this would be an experience of my own that I faced last year. I was standing in line with a friend during lunch and noticed two kids behind us discussing how they were both racist as casually as if they were discussing the weather. One of them asked the other who they hated the most and they responded with, Muslims, I can't stand those terrorists. My friend and I were so shocked that we just looked at each other for a little bit and then just left the line. So sad to say that this isn't even the worst of macroaggressions. That is such a horrifying and horrible situation to be in. And my heart goes out to anybody that has been in a similar situation to Sarah. But another terrifying microaggression that is happening right now is the Muslim concentration camps in China. This is yet another example of how the media controls the way people view certain situations. Several citizens in the United States aren't aware of this massive tragedy that could potentially classify as a genocide. Uyghur Muslims are an ethnic group in China that are being tortured simply because of their faith. These camps were prompted in 2017, and it wasn't until this year, three years later, that people finally understood the gravity of this situation. These camps are called re-education camps because they have Islam categorized as a mental illness. The treatment put on the Muslims in these camps is horrific. They are tortured, forced to eat pork and drink alcohol, gang-raped, and some women are put under medical procedures to make them sterile or unable to give birth. The thinking behind this is inhumane. They are literally trying to make Uyghur Muslims extinct. It's clear that this is unacceptable and should be stopped. So some ways we can stop this from continuing to happen 
is by first contacting our senators to urge them to co-sponsor the S.3471 bill, which imposes various restrictions related to China's Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, including prohibiting certain, certain imports from Xinjiang and imposing sanctions on those responsible for human rights violations there. Another way to help is by endorsing the global campaign for fashion brands to stop being complicit in Uyghur forced labor. The call to action on human rights abuses in the Uyghur region in the apparel and textile sector is supported today by more than 250 trade unions, investors, NGOs, Uyghur groups, and faith-based groups. If you are going to take away one thing from this episode, then please let it be these things you can do to help the Uyghurs. To continue on from SAR's list, here are some additional steps you can take in order to fight for the Uyghur Muslims. Sign these petitions. Number one, tell Zara, stop profiting from Uyghur forced labor. Number two, read Rahima Muhammad's story, stand with Rahima and add your name here, free Uyghur Muslims from forced labor. Number three, Beijing's Olympics. The choice is simple, respect Uyghur rights and close the camps or lose the 2022 Winter Games. And number four, where is the beloved Uyghur folklore professor Rahil Dawat? Call for her release. Next, you can donate to the Uyghur Human Rights Project, UHRP, to continue to, continue to fund slash support their work, which is providing emergency humanitarian relief for Uyghur refugees, interviewing concentration camp survivors to help tell their story to the world, and even campaigning to end business as usual while Uyghurs are suffering crimes against humanity. And you can even volunteer or intern with the Uyghur Human Rights Project, UHRP, another way you can help Uyghur Muslims. These solutions will make a difference. So it's really just up to us to take advantage of our voices. So many Muslims around the world are victim to these conditions, or even worse, but don't have the freedom to speak up, which makes it that much more important that we bring this issue to the forefront of our conversations. Yes, absolutely. But Sarah, let me ask you this. What would you say to someone that still denies Islamophobia? It eventually just comes down to whether you care about humanity or not. This isn't a political issue. It's a human rights one. People are getting stripped of their rights every day. And if you don't know about it, that's evidence of your choice to ignore our suffering. Thank you, Sarah, for being open enough to share your personal stories. I know it can be so hard, but we are doing this to encourage and educate others. Thank you so much, Anjali, for letting me be on your podcast, and I'm so excited for the next episode.